This episode of Out Alive is brought to you by Backpacker Basecamp. Go beyond the pages of Backpacker Magazine and join Backpacker Basecamp. Our new membership program connects you with exclusive benefits to get you out even more. Gear deals, video tutorials, exclusive newsletters, expert advice, members-only giveaways, and more. Join today at backpacker.com slash Basecamp. This story contains adult content that may not be suitable for all listeners. If you want to make your skin crawl, imagine getting buried by an avalanche. That's what we're talking about today, and it honestly makes my pulse race just thinking about it here in my office. The fear of getting buried alive is so common that there is a name for it. I looked it up. It's called taphophobia, and there are plenty of confirmed diagnoses. Some people like George Washington, Edgar Allan Poe, Hans Christian Andersen, probably you, and definitely me. For the most part, it's an irrational fear, unless you're traveling in avalanche terrain. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was a worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst-case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. In December of 2014, Amy Engerbretson was caught in an avalanche while skiing just outside Alta Ski Resort in Utah. Now, I am not a backcountry skier, so I wanted to bring in somebody who is to kind of contextualize Amy's story for us. Sitting with me today is Jesse Hackett. Okay, Jesse, tell us what you do. <laughs> um, yes, I work at Warren Mill Entertainment. I'm the content and marketing manager, and um, I work with Amy quite a bit. She's been in a lot of our films the last few years. Uh, she's who hosts our podcast, Long Underwear, and she's been featured in Ski Magazine a bunch, too. So I did a little bit of research, and I came up with some stats that I want to share with you as a skier to see if you were aware. So on average, 27 people a year die in avalanches here in the United States. I tried to look up how many avalanches there are in general every year, but the fact is is that most of them go unreported. So unless somebody dies or is severely injured, we can't really know for sure. Yeah, I actually witnessed my friend get caught in a small slide back when I was in college. Oh, interesting. Do you remember if the danger was classified as considerable that day? I learned that in North America, avalanche experts classify avalanche danger on a five-point scale. Low, moderate, considerable, high, and extreme. About half of all avalanche deaths occur when conditions are considerable. That is the middle ranking A3. Yeah, I don't totally remember. It was probably about eight years ago, um, but it was probably about a three or four that day. Uh, there was a lot of fresh snow. Um, we toured up to an area that was still below tree line, and my buddy began to ski down this slope. And as soon as he made a couple turns, about an like a 12-foot wide and two feet deep slab just broke off behind him and just picked him up. Luckily, it was small enough where he was able to sort of ride it out. But I remember being shaken up. 
So when Amy was out, it was also a day that was classified as considerable. And I'll just be honest, when we were first talking about our podcast and you told me about Amy, I almost wrote her off because she's a pro skier. I just assumed that she was in some pretty extreme terrain, sending some gnarly line, and she triggered an avalanche, which seems like a story that might not be as relatable, but that was not the case at all. Well, I've been skiing for about 30 years now. (laughs) I'm 31. And uh, my first day on skis, I was actually 10 months old. I walked at nine months and my dad put me on skis at 10 months and been basically skiing ever since. I've been skiing professionally for about eight years now, and I've been in three Warren Miller movies and published in a bunch of magazines. And yeah, I spend my winters kind of chasing snow and creating content that hopefully inspires other people to go out and ski and enjoy the mountains and and live a fulfilling, dream-filled life. It was a day in early December. It was a sunny powder day. It's kind of one of the first days of the year like that. And I had been out um, shooting photos at the resort all morning. And it was just a heaven day, picture perfect day, the day that we all dream about, um, blue skies, you know, give or take two feet of fresh snow, 20 inches, something like that. Super dry, duffy, light snow. And it was kind of just the first awesome day of the season. I met up with another photographer, Adam Clark, and we were going to go shoot just out of bounds in the afternoon for the evening light. As soon as you leave the boundaries of a ski resort, you're in the backcountry. This is Greg Gain from the Utah Avalanche Center. He's going to help us break down some of the more technical elements as we go along. Everyone in a party has to have the necessary rescue gear. Everyone in a party needs to have a beacon. So an avalanche beacon works in two modes, transmit and receive. They operate at special frequencies and When you start your day, you turn your your beacon to transmit, and then you go off for the day. If someone is caught in an avalanche and they're buried, well, their beacon is transmitting. What the other members of the party will do is switch their beacons to receive. And modern beacons work quite well. They give you a direction to move in and a distance to that beacon. So once you pick up a signal, when you get to your closest position, of that beacon that's transmitting, then you need to use your probe. You are putting your probe down through the snow, you're trying to find that person, and then you need a shovel to dig them out. So if you're missing any one of those three pieces of gear, they don't work. The plan was to head out to a little zone just outside the gates of Alta, and it's really not far. I mean, it's like literally a 10 to 15 minute boot pack. Hardly even in the backcountry. You can see the parking lot. You can see the lifts the whole time. And um, on the way out, we had a discussion about the fact that not everybody in the crew had all their gear. And I had all my gear. I was wearing an avalanche backpack, a transceiver. But we discovered that Adam didn't have any of his gear. He didn't have a beacon shovel or probe. We obviously had that discussion and and knew that that was the case, but we kind of didn't really say anything and be like, oh, maybe we shouldn't go just because it was really close We didn't really discuss the avalanche hazard that day, although I had read the report that morning. I knew it was a considerable day. I knew that it snowed, whatever, 20 inches. I'd been skiing it all day. And we didn't really discuss the avalanche hazard at all beyond that. 
It was in the middle of December. Essentially, we were dealing with an issue on north aspects where we had some snow in November and then we had uh, high pressure, high and dry, and that snow rotted, um, turned into this weak sugar snow, and then it snowed on top of it. It seems like a few days before her accident, um, there was a pretty decent storm providing great ski conditions. And um, most people were avoiding steep north aspects that had that weak snow underneath. And so for someone to drop in on that line, it was a bit surprising to me. I wasn't even thinking about it. And it was kind of a long end run. I had to come down by these like power lines. And, and there were some other people in the area. There was actually a, an Abbey One class going on on the slope above us. Um, so we weren't alone. And as we were dropping in, I happened to just, for whatever reason, look across the slope because it was a slope that was in a very deep ravine. So I looked across the slope and I saw these people who, for whatever reason, seemed to be like watching me. And I just had this thought like, huh, well, those people are watching me. My name is Aaron Nice, and I'm an environmental scientist in Vermont. This is Aaron Rice, and he was hanging out on one of the ridge lines above where Amy was skiing. And he's actually a pretty accomplished skier himself. He holds the record for the most vertical feet logged in a year at a modest two and a half million. Anyway, he watched the whole thing unfold. My friend and I were skinning up on a south-facing slope. And so we were going up Grizzly Gulf, and we were kind of like, what's going on here? Who is that? Um, and then we heard... That, so that was Adam halfway down the slope, and we heard Adam uh, yelling up to somebody above. Um, and we were like, oh, they're taking photos here. Um, and we knew that was a bad idea because we had just seen these human triggered right next to it. And the advisory for that day was uh, moderate below 9,200 feet on north-facing slopes and considerable above 9,200 feet. And that slope is like right at 9,200. Um, so it's right on the edge of moderate to considerable but it's deep and north-facing. I explained to Amy where I wanted her to turn. I was, I was across the goalie. Okay, this is the photographer who is with Amy and setting up the shot, Adam Clark. And she dropped in, and then right after her first turn, it cracked all around her, and it's this little bowl that goes into a really steep, small goalie, and it just, the whole, the entirety of the small bowl slid with her the whole slope just shifts underneath me and a pocket of storm slab had re released around me with me in the center of it. And I, because of the deep snow and the way I was turning, I had no momentum to ski out of it. My like mind completely switched into like, oh my God, you're in a deep terrain trap, which means like a ravine where the snow can't funnel out. It just piles on top of each other, which makes it really dangerous. You're above a huge train trap. It's a considerable side day. There's 20 inches of new snow. I knew immediately, like, I was in a fight for my life situation. Um, I knew immediately it was a worst case scenario. So I pulled my airbag right away. And then I began to kind of make my way diagonally right on the slope to try to get, there was like a little island of small trees. I heard her and watched her pull her airbag. And it's like, you're immediately just, the adrenaline starts pumping. A deployed airbag increases your chances of survival by 50%. Where the accident was uh, is pretty unforgiving terrain. 
and in the other 50% where airbags aren't that effective, it's terrain like that. And I could tell that it was a really big avalanche for the place that we were at. So that was the one thing that was going through my head is like, this was really serious. And, you know, I can't believe this is happening right now. As I was coming into that turn, everything was great. I was elated. I was happy. I was doing what I wanted to do. It was beautiful. It was gorgeous. Like it was just literally the best day ever. But as soon as that snow shifted under my feet, I was acutely aware of every mistake we had made, every heuristic trap we had fallen into, you know, the expert halo of me just blindly following locals and Adam Clark, he's a backcountry photographer. He's like the best proximity trap of we were barely even in the backcountry. It wasn't even a big slope. Um, and then of course, like the, the blatant, crazy, obvious mistake of going in the backcountry with people who don't have their gear. It was, it was like I didn't even know myself. I didn't even know I had the capability to make those mistakes. But actually on a dime, I went to, oh my God, you could definitely die right now. You need to act appropriately. Um, and it was amazing the way my mind just systematically went through all the things it needed to do in, um, you know, obviously splits of seconds. The first thing I thought was train trap. The second thing I thought was 20 inches of new snow. Um, just cause that to me, like my mind, that was my mind doing math of like how deep I could end up, you know? And there are statistics about if you're more than three feet under the snow, uh, you usually don't survive or your survival rate goes way down. And in my head, I was like, I, I need to get to those trees. Like I cannot go in the train trap. I cannot go in the ravine. So I stay kind of on my feet, kind of like struggling against the snow. I get to the trees um, and I actually can grab onto them for a second. And at that time, the other portion of the slope I had released, sympathetically released. So that means the slope was unsupported and the snow then gave way. So there was kind of like a second wave of the avalanche that was a little bit more powerful. A sympathetic release occurs when you trigger, you directly trigger an avalanche, and then that avalanche, the force of that avalanche triggers a separate avalanche. So one avalanche triggers another. The trees I was holding onto were quite small, so they ended up just getting bent over in the power of the snow. My visual was this, the trees just getting ripped from my hands. And then at that point, I was I was in it. I was tumbling. It's a very similar feeling to being, you know, like washed in a wave or something like that. I was tumbling. I was in the snow, and I had just taken my AVI course. I remember the instructor kind of going through what to do if you're in a slide, and she said, you know, you're going to need to try to make an air pocket. And so what I did is I grabbed across my face, and I held onto the side of my helmet so that, like, my forearm was kind of in front of my mouth. And as I was tumbling, and then I eventually I hit on my back, and I saw blue sky. And then I saw a white wash over me. Once the white came over me, I was buried, um, you know, instantly and right away was completely stuck. I couldn't move at, at all. Like you can't even move enough to tremble. I was by myself over there. There's some other people behind me, a skier that was living up at Alta and another guy. They had Abbey Gear beacons shovels, but I didn't have anything. Adam got really, really lucky because where he was standing was like 10 or 15 feet away from where the slope broke and it could have easily 
covered him and he didn't have any any avalanche gear. So um, when we saw it, I ripped my skins and skied down and my buddy had his phone out and so he called uh, the local dispatch uh, just in case she was hurt, um, people would already be on the way. We basically all skied down together immediately. And, you know, we were only, I'm going to say 300 feet down. We are above the avalanche, so 300 feet downhill to the avalanche debris pile. I guess being around skiing and avalanches my whole life, those stories are always in the back of my head. And to see that and see how much debris was in this goalie, it, it was like really sickening to see it happen. And so, of course, that's what I thought was that there's a good chance she would be dead or injured. just basically kind of went into a mode of knowing that I had to breathe as slowly and as calmly as possible because usually what happens is when you're under the snow your your breath will create a melt freeze barrier in the snow so then you um, give yourself your own co2 poisoning basically so the less you breathe the more time you have for the co2 you're releasing and for the kind of the moisture that's going out of your body and melting the snow to create like that airtight barrier so you have about 10 minutes to get to get to a person and get to an airway uh and 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 to get to have a good neurological outcome with the victim and then like after 15 minutes survival rates drop off so steep okay you're under the snow like don't don't think about anything other than not panicking like because i mean being buried alive is a pretty like common fear for all human beings um and it's horrible and so i can't even i can't even stress how much like people always want to know like oh were you thinking about your dad or were you thinking about dying or you know what were you thinking about and honestly like i could not think about anything my brain wouldn't let me think about anything other than 100% focus on not panicking you know it wasn't like focusing on staying alive. It was just, it, it was more simple than that. Like you, you took everything I had to not panic in that situation. So I went down there and Adam was digging kind of off to the side um, with his hands. And I asked if he had any avalanche gear because I was going to have him put his beacon into search so that I didn't pick him up. Um, and he said, I don't, uh, but she does. So I turned my beacon to search and then I followed that signal until it got down to 0.3 meters. And then I deployed my probe. And while I did that, Adam uh, went through my pack and got out my shovel. Um, so I depo- deployed my probe and did a few um, probes. And I missed her the first three times. There was a lot of pressure on my chest. And then, you know, actually within, you know, maybe 30 seconds even, I, I heard footsteps above me. I heard people on top of me and I could hear the snow crunching. And so at that point I did yell very, very loud three times, which I later found out they absolutely did not hear. And I know you're not supposed to do that, but you know, I did, I just couldn't help myself basically. And then I kind of like took a deep breath and did another search and just took my time this time and did a really nice fine search and then took my probe and hit again. And that time I hit her on the first try. Within about another 30 seconds, definitely within like a minute of being buried, I I would say, 
I felt a probe strike. It struck me right on kind of like my bicep on my left arm. And that was just the most amazing feeling because I then at that point I knew that they were, like somebody was coming for me. They at least located me. I had no idea how deep I was. So I had no idea how long it would take them to move the snow because I, I had just done shoveling drills and, and was very well aware that that's the hard part is moving the snow. Um, it can take a lot of time because it does set up to a cement-like uh, substance right away. So they, they were digging and I could kind of like hear noises like crunching snow and it eventually became louder and eventually you know like the snow started to get a little lighter on me and the first thing they uncover was my my right hand um that was the first thing that was free and I remember just starting to shake it wildly you know just uncontrollably and somebody I don't know who uh grabbed it and and squeezed it so I started shoveling Aaron and his friends started shoveling at, at a certain point I saw her hand and it was way more important to shovel, I think, than touch your hand, but there's something that made me want to reassure her more than anything. And, and I could feel her squeeze back. Then it was, you know, a matter of seconds before they finally got to my face. They cleared my airway. Um, turned out they were they didn't know, but they were standing on me. So they moved and they dug out a little bit different and um, pretty quickly got the rest of my body out. And at that time, you know, the, the first face I saw um, when the snow came off my goggles was Adam's face. Um, and he had just the craziest look of relief. Um, I'll never forget that image. When she was finally out and breathing and talking to us, she was still partway in the snow, but she was talking to us and it was just like, oh my God, it, she's okay. This is okay. Like, she's not dead. I still didn't know if she was injured or not, but she said she was okay. And that's, you know, that was probably the biggest sigh of relief I've ever had. And then I, you know, it all happened really quick from then on out. It kind of it turned out that strangers had the two men that were watching me that I happened to notice did come down to assist in the rescue with their avalanche gear, because obviously Adam did not have it. All our adrenaline was running really high and we like introduced each other to ourselves like three or four times and nobody could remember each other's name. It was really weird. Um, Cause it was just like, we had so much adrenaline. Our brain was not trying to remember that kind of thing. It was kind of a crazy situation where we were actually still in some danger right where we were standing. There was hang fire. An avalanche is composed of different pieces. If you imagine looking at, uh, we call it the crown of an avalanche. So you see this big fracture line so the, the hang fire is remaining snow above an avalanche. And you want to be cautious of hang fire because you just got an avalanche on that slope. You probably should be quite suspicious that there'll be further avalanche. So we, we kind of just very quickly, I mean, they did an assessment like, are, you know, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm, I think I'm fine. I don't, I don't feel injured. I did mention, I was like, I'm pretty sure I peed my pants. And then we kind of just said, like, thank you, basically, which was seems completely insignificant. And within the span of less than 20 minutes, it was over. And I know for me personally, the, the first emotion, the first thought I was having once I was okay, once I was, I was out and I saw Adam's face was, um, I just couldn't believe how stupid I could be. And I immediately was aware of how how many mistakes we had made and how, how massively we had, had blown it, you know? And it was just such an, a, a foreign feeling to me. I had never felt like just so stupid, really. 
I've, I've often heard other forecasters or avalanche educators refer to it as, as a free pass. That is, you get caught in an avalanche and nothing bad happens. And it's a free pass and we get some free learning out of it. So it's really important that we take advantage of it. And we don't want this to be any kind of shaming ritual at all. You know, instead we understand, you know, we're, we all love to ski powder and there's an inherent risk with it. And accidents happen. They happen to really experienced people. So many people get caught in avalanches and I, really appreciated and admired how open Amy was after the accident. I think talking about it is necessary for my own healing, but also for other people to to learn from my mistakes, but then also feel more okay about their own mistakes and, and, and learn to forgive themselves for that. You know, I was I was very, very affected by the trauma of being buried. You know, my relationship with skiing and and my relationship with snow was severely damaged. Um, I was very uncomfortable anytime I was in the backcountry, anytime I was skiing soft snow, even in the resort. I would look over my shoulder every single turn. The feeling of like sinking into a powder turn where, you know, there is movement in the snow immediately would like spike my blood pressure. There was a time a couple months later where um, really close to a bunch of my friends and my roommates and we were hanging out in the living room and they, they dogpiled on me and that feeling of being having pressure on my body, I absolutely lost it. I had never experienced something like that before. And eventually I finally sought counseling. I went to a trauma specialist. I found it to be very effective, but I wouldn't say until it was really this winter, to be honest, where I kind of finally am starting to almost feel normal again, which is, is not the right word because I will always be different from this experience. But I think also it's been about just learning, you know, taking the last five years to learn to forgive myself and to learn, like, for me, you know, fear is totally wrapped up in this. Fear and trauma go hand in hand. And a lot of people, you know, there's this stupid phrase in our society of, of, uh, overcoming your fears. And for me, like in this experience, like th that's not reasonable. Like this is a part of me and this has changed who I am and it is going to shape my future. And I think it's going to be for the better. I think it's going to help me to make better decisions, but it's about learning to live with my fear and learning to coexist with my experiences and just learning to kind of let that shame go away and just appreciate the experience, appreciate that I'm, I'm still alive and that I can make better decisions now and, and just be a little bit more gentle with myself and, and be reasonable with myself when, I, when I'm scared of avalanches because you know what? I almost died in one. So that's pretty okay. Like that's something that that's just part of who I am now, you know? And I think that finally, five years later, I'm starting to learn to manage that a little better and, and the joy is finally coming back, you know? It's not the same, but it's it's there's a spark. I don't feel broken anymore. I feel different, but I don't think I feel broken anymore. Thank you so much to Amy Engerbretson, Adam Clark, Greg Gain, and Aaron Rice for sharing their story. Hey listeners, we want to hear from you. Reach out in the comments or send us an email to podcast at backpacker.com or join in the conversation at hashtag backpacker out alive. Do you have a backcountry survival story? Let us know that too. This episode was produced by myself, Louisa Albanese, along with Zoe Gates, Amelia Arvison, with sound design by Matt Cudair. A special thanks to our guest, Jesse Hackett from Warren Miller Entertainment. Our sound editor is Christopher Wright from Work at Bird Studios. Our interns are Will Halber and David Gleisner. If you enjoyed this episode of Ad Alive, please subscribe and leave us a review. 